Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. I think it's time for us, Jundo, to do a critical reappraisal of Pink Floyd's 1977 album, Animals, because you are such a Pink Floyd fan, and you told me a few episodes ago that this is the one Pink Floyd album that you don't really know very well. Yeah, I'm kind of a wish-you-were-here guy and then a dark side of the moon, but you are the great music aficionado. You you have a music podcast that is really informative. Everyone should listen. Can I get your view of Animal? Well, for a long time, my favorite album was Wish You Were Here, followed by Dark Side of the Moon, which you just you you've heard it so many times late nights just spinning the album over and over that it kind of gets played out but in recent years i've been re-listening to animals which didn't grab me when it came out and what i discovered when i looked into it is that the two main songs on animals which are sheep and dogs were written at the same time as shine on you crazy diamond and they were originally meant to be those three songs on which you were here they had different names. You've Got to Be Crazy became dogs, and Raving and Drooling became sheep. So th- they are of a part with the period from which you were here. Yet, if you listen to it carefully, you can hear The Wall coming, because Roger Waters wrote mo- most of the music as he wrote all of The Wall. And there's even a bit in Dogs, there's a melody where you can just hear the vocals coming in, tear down the wall. Oh, wow. I got to... You see, I I got to listen again, you know? <laughs> wow. So I thought it was called Animals because all the songs are named for animals. But you're saying that the, the album's called Animals because they changed the name of all the songs. And that's our subject today is Animal. This was just a teaser to bring in the subject of animals from a Zen perspective. Does a dog have Buddha nature? Moo. Oh, that's a cow. Why is it a cow? Does a cow have Buddha nature? Moo. That would make more sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, moo means nothingness or, or no, right? Uh, yes, but no. But no, and yes, and that's the whole point. It's a complex word. But actually, wouldn't the best answer to that koan, does a dog have Buddha nature, just be silence? It's a, a matter of expression of understanding. Do you understand? what it means to say that a dog has Buddha nature or not, or not. You see, uh, the, Professor Steve Hine, who's a good friend, uh, a great Buddhologist, and that, that, I know that sounds like something you can get arrested for, but <laughs> no, he's an expert on, on, on Buddhology, on, on Buddha and uh, uh, Doganism. Uh, he's a wonderful Do- Dogen historian has a book called, uh, I believe it's called Fighting Like Cats and Dogs, which is the history of the Moo Koan, which does a dog have Buddha nature? And may I briefly dive into that? 
Sure, because this is one of, even though we don't do koans much in Soto Zen, and particularly in Tree Leaf, this is really one of the first koans, isn't it? Well, no, it, that's a mistake to say that we don't do koans. All the Zen lineages cherish koans. We don't do uh, Zazen meditation focused on a phrase from a koan. Okay. But we dance with, dive into, bark with the dog koan here. Okay. And and here's the here's the point. You know, if you're going to deal with this philosophically, uh, Buddhist uh, intellectuals were arguing for hundreds of years about whether a dog is a sentient being or not. Something that even modern people, I'm a animal lover. You know, you dog owners. You know, is is your dog uh, a sentient being? I would say yes. So if it is a sentient being, does it have within the potential to become Buddha? And this led to uh, millions of pages of of uh, tomes that no one reads uh, particularly anymore, arguing the point. And the way you see that the Zen folks came to approach this is to leap right through the question: Does a dog have Buddha nature? Well, most people would say, of course, it's as Buddha as you and me, and, and maybe it was your reincarnated grandmother. No offense to your grandma, but she may have come back as a dog, and that dog would now have the Buddha nature, and maybe in the future will rise to be a Buddha. But the way is not to think about it. The way is to dive through, and you dive through by diving through yes, diving through no, diving through maybe, diving through the whole question, and just saying, moo, moo is not no, moo is not yes, moo is not the sound of a cow, moo is the great affirmation. It doesn't mean no. It means, of course. Does a tomato have Buddha nature? That's another debate that <laughs> uh, scholars have had about uh, so-called insentient objects. But let's stick with animals today, man. We'll have our episode next week as Jundo and Kirk talk about tornadoes for an hour. But uh, no, uh, today is just animals. Well, doesn't everything have Buddha nature? Well, that's the thing. But uh, sentient beings tend to get a special place. And this is the subject of animals we need to address today. Buddha was a big ranker. I'm sorry, ranking. He liked ranking. I have to be careful saying that to uh, on an English uh, podcast. You said ranker, not the other word. Yeah. Yes, he was a ranker. Yes. Which means that uh, Buddhism is filled with tables and lists and charts. And animals actually are kind of low down there. I was looking today. And you got, uh, at the top, you got your uh, gods, usually the Hindu gods. And that's not necessarily a good thing, because they're having such a good time. It's a perpetual party up there. They really don't care about getting enlightened, see. Then you got human beings. Human beings is actually a good place to be, because we got the right mix of, of ups and downs and pleasure and pain. That We know that life is good, but we can focus on our practice. But below us, there was another uh, uh, Indian... Uh, group. They didn't know what to do with them. It's called the Azuras. They were the like the fighters. They're the guys in bars, have a, a beer too many and just take a pool cue and just start a fight for the heck of it. It's Friday night. <laughs> Those are the Azuras. And be- under that, at the very bottom, you got hell. Okay, Above hell, you got hungry ghosts. Those are people who are never satisfied. But between the hungry ghosts and the, f- the fighting bar fighters, they're the Azuras, you got your animal. So animals was not really a good thing to be. Animals are seen to be kind of like animals. 
you know, and uh, hopefully they get to come back and be human beings again in the next life. Are all animals considered equal or are some more equal than others? What is this, animal farm, Orwell, or what, <laughs> what's our subject today? Animals, uh, yeah. In other words, do they have a hierarchy of like cows, which are sacred in India now, but maybe not back in the day? Are, are cats and dogs high in the hierarchy and are, I don't know, mice and, and moles considered very low? I would say so, yes. Now, the, the cow, the sacred cow thing, that is uh, basically a Hindu uh, belief. That's not a, a Buddhist uh, thing so much. But yes, even amongst the animals, I would say there was a rank. If you, if you came uh, back, let's say, as a horse, it was definitely better than being a, as a worm. And under a worm, uh, you might have, uh, I don't know, lawyers. You know, that I had to throw in a lawyer joke. <laughs> so one of the questions about animals is, are they sentient? And how do we define sentience? Some philosophers define sentience as consciousness or the ability to feel. And this makes a distinction. I read a book, I don't remember who it was, by a philosopher who said he had no qualms about crushing mosquitoes because they're not sentient. Well, this is uh, the thing. You either believe uh, that, uh, for example, all things are sentient, even carrots and rocks. There are those people. There are people who go the other extreme and say, I can't be sure right now that I'm not talking to Kirk the automaton, who's just giving a very good impression to me of being uh, uh, sentient and alive, but really there's nothing going on in there. Earth I will Kirk, point Earth out that we have never met in person, so you don't know if I'm real. No, it's not that. I've never been inside your head. You know, I'm just assuming from your yeah. facial expressions that you're feeling what I'm feeling. Uh, you know, that's the old uh, solipsistic debate. But uh, yeah, generally I would say dogs and cats and horses, and we, we think that they have their personalities and we can, they got emotions, we can kind of relate to them. But yeah, it's hard to relate to a mosquito, but we think something's going on. In yeah. Something. Uh, ant hills, they they look smart as a as a group. Yeah, but not as individuals. Beehives, bees are they they can build these hives and they can do all this work to protect the queen and and further the colony, but individually they don't seem to have the same sort of identity that other animals have. No, no, no. Speak for yourself. I saw the movie. You know, bees with you know Seinfeld plays a bee. They're they're smart. Children's movies are not a good litmus test for these things. Can we talk about children's movies for a second? Let's talk about children's movies because what children's movies and stories do is they anthropomorphize animals exactly. and make animals seem like more than they are, which may not be a bad thing actually. And they also make animals generally seem cute. Yes. And I confess, I'm a cat guy. Yep, me too. Uh, I think some animals are very, very cute. I just came from a ranch. Uh, one of my students has a horse ranch. And in a few days, uh, I could tell very much that he loves those horses. I, 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 I appreciated the horses, but he really, I think he would take one of those horses into bed with him if he could. Not, I don't mean in a, in a, in a funky kind of way. I just mean would cuddle right. up That's with the That's a topic horse. for a different episode, I think. Yeah. I would just mean he would cuddle up with the horse, like I right. cuddle up with my cat. Okay. But um, it was not always so clear in Buddhism that we have to love and appreciate all animals. And, you know, you, you got to think that, let's go back 2,000 years or even just a few hundred years. These were agricultural places. Animals were not cute pets to keep in the living room. I mean, maybe somebody had a, their little cat or dog. 
But animals were either working animals, or they were pests, or they were animals you wanted to stay away from, because if you don't eat them, they're going to eat you. The Buddha talks many times about, don't go in the jungle because there are tigers out there. There are yep. poison snakes, yep. like that. So it's not that Buddhism thinks that all animals are to be loved and cherished like that. Uh, I don't think it was so easy. That's an interesting point, because either you have to say all animals that have sentience should be respected the same, or none of them should be respected. In, in something like Buddhism, I'm surprised to have gradations like that across the animals. I, I mean, granted, I don't like slugs, they're annoying, but you can't just say some animals are good and some aren't, can you? Well, the, the, actually, traditional Buddhism has something called the Jataka tale, which are stories of the Buddha in his lives before he became the Buddha. And there are hundreds of these tales, and he basically was every kind of animal under the sun. There's a story where he's a duck, there's a story where he's a snake, there's a story where he's a turtle, like that. And the point of that is, if you read the stories, that, uh, well, okay, we, we all go, the, the turtle may have been your mother or your, your grandfather, and, and the turtle, if the turtle made good choices as a turtle, the turtle might come back the next life and be a prince or a horse or something better than a turtle. I don't know exactly the ranking. Yeah. Uh, maybe there were, you know, like uh, billboard top 50 rankings <laughs> where these, I'm not sure, but. but uh, so the point there was to introduce the idea of doing good deeds to be reincarnated as a better animal or a human, right? Yeah. Well, actually, you wanted to get completely out of animals. Oh. You, you know, animals was, you know, just, uh, it, it was like uh, working at McDonald's. I mean, you, it's it's good. Some people, I, I appreciate people work at McDonald's, but it, you, when you work in there, you, you think, I got to get something better for the long term. So if you're a turtle, you think, okay, there's nothing wrong with being a turtle. Turtles are beautiful, but for the long term, we got to get out of here. We got, We need something with a dental plan. Yet humans are animals. This is a thing. This is a thing. Yes, in modern terms, we are animals. But Buddhism always felt that we are special. And basically, we're the center of the universe. Right. In the same way that Christianity said Earth was the center of the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, being a person is. And it's our chance here, more than any other place, to truly realize enlightenment. Which is not surprising. It's not surprising because Buddhism was written by people, so we tend to kind of favor the people. If Buddhism had been written by a turtle, I'm sure turtles would be the center of the universe. Yeah, yeah. So just as with Christianity, where man has dominion over the animals, in Buddhism, man has dominion over the animals as well. Exactly. Yet there has been this debate over the centuries about whether or not we can eat animals. And if oh, we do, we're going to go which, there. Well, it's one of the topics that comes up when you talk about animals. So can you eat animals? If you can, which ones? You definitely don't want to eat the slugs, and you might want to eat some snakes. Turtles are good in a soup. Cows, they're good almost every way. This has been a great episode. Can't we just, can't we just end it here? Because, <laughs> you know, we dive into this, man. It's, it's like one of those subjects, like, uh, you know, boy, uh, for I, I've never been more scared than by some vegetarians who I thought were actually going to make an exception in, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and kill me. Um, let me dive briefly into the rather complicated subject of vegetarianism 
and Buddhism. Grab a carrot. Are you ready? Yes, I'll get a carrot. Okay. Contrary to most popular beliefs, historically, much of Buddhism was not particularly vegetarian. In South Asia, where it all started, in India, the Buddhist uh, uh, teachings, uh, said to be from the Buddha himself, was that you go out with your begging bowl and whatever is put in there, you accept. Now, there are certain things you're not supposed to eat. Uh, first off, anything that will kill you. And you should try to avoid cannibalism. And there were certain other kinds of meat. I believe horse was on the forbidden list. Really? But yeah, I think so. I have to check the list. But I okay. know you're definitely not supposed to eat people. Yeah, that's which, pretty obvious. Pretty obvious, yeah. But if somebody put anything else in your bowl, including meat, that you didn't, and they made all kinds of exceptions, meat that you did not know was specifically killed for you, you could eat it. Now, there's a, a story that a South Asian monk told me in modern times, and they were having a, a feast, and someone said, oh, I have a turkey, and I'm going to donate it to the monastery. And that, so far, so good. But then he said, oh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to butcher it and bring it over. They could no longer accept it. Mm. Until the point that they knew it had been killed specifically for them, they could eat it. If he had already killed it and brought it over, no problem. There's lunch. So it wasn't kosher. It was not kosher. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, now, so wait a second. If, if a Buddhist goes to a butcher shop to buy a steak, can he assume that the steak was not specifically killed for him? That it was just killed for general consumption, and would that explain away the killed for exception? This sounds like we're splitting animal hairs here. In South Asia, monks are not supposed to handle money or go into stores and make purchases. I've actually seen this with the monks in Costco. They're from <laughs> Theravadan monks from Sri Lanka who come to Costco, and people buy things for them. They kind of like you know tilt their head and point like. Hey, I need some cereal, you know, but they don't, they don't, they can't say. So it's like teenagers standing outside of a grocery store, giving someone 10 bucks to buy them a six pack of beer. Yes, exactly. Now, I don't see them actually pointing at the beer or the steak. Right. So I think they were actually, you know, there is some discretion there. But if someone did <laughs> stick a T-bone in their bowl, I think, you know, basically, I think the rules are that they have to accept it and, and, and put it in tomorrow's curry. I believe so. Now, right, because this is a donation given to them to further their existence as a monk. And also the donor gets merit for making this donation. Right, so you don't want to refuse a Big Mac because you don't want that donor to not get karma points for buying you the Big Mac. I will confess, I don't know the ins and outs of South Asian practices, so okay. I don't want to speak out of turn. What about in Japan? No, we got, we got to go through China to get okay, to Okay, so let's go through China. China eats almost anything that moves. No, not the Buddhists. Okay, but Chinese people will eat almost anything that moves. The Buddhists did what some religious converts will do, which was went holier than thou. They wrote some of their own sutras or later sutras that said, I don't care what they do in the early sut the early, early Buddhist books. Here, it is absolutely forbidden to eat meat, period, bar none. Absolutely. Do not let lips that touch liver will never touch mine. Like that. <laughs> well, actually, no one's lips are touching anyone. They're monks. But you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but uh, I just read yesterday the Lanka 
Patara Sutra, which has a famous chapter on uh, why the Chinese, and actually it's North Indians, Chinese decided to be vegetarian. And they list a bunch of reasons, some of which make sense, some of which not quite. One was, like I said, the turtle could be your mother, the, the, the steak could have been your Aunt Betty. That is one reason. One reason. The other reason is that they said that uh, meat uh, makes you violent. Yeah, so you posted this on the Tree Leaf Forum, and I'll link to this forum thread in the show notes. Um, the bit that really grabbed me is this. It is not appropriate, Mahavadi, for a bodhisattva who loves purity to eat meat that comes from the union of semen and blood. Already, that's a little bit strange. It is not appropriate, Mahavadi, for a bodhisattva whose spiritual practice is to strive to develop love to eat meat, as this will cause living beings to shake in fear. Hmm. For example, Mahavadi, when a dog sees a damba, an outcast, or a fisherman who desires to eat flesh, even from a distance, he will be gripped by fear and think, these are accomplished killers, they will kill me too. Okay. So what, if so, if a human eats meat, they're going to think that the other humans are going to kill them too? That seems like a, maybe something's lost in the translation there. Well, we are violent, and maybe, you know, if we did eat carrots, we'd be less violent. But then, the, I, this is what I gets me in trouble. I always say things, but then wasn't Hitler and those folks, weren't they all vegetarians? I know. But that's, a, that's, that's another subject. Most yeah. of the vegetarians I know, they're pretty intense in other ways. Yeah. But um, what happened to Japan? Uh, what happened to Japan? Did they eat meat? Well, they eat a lot of fish. We know that. Yeah, they started getting married. They started drinking alcohol a little, and they started tolerating uh, the eating of meat. And I don't think they even follow uh, anymore that you can't buy it for yourself rule. I think that the monk uh, just goes into the the Costco and, and uh, picks up a, a, a chicken if he wants or a steak. But um, there are a lot of people who say that the Japanese really should be vegetarian. I'm going to say this. I have very mixed feelings about it. My teacher, Nishijima, it was funny. I, I, I told this story before. He said, I'm, he was celibate, but he said not everyone has to be celibate. But he was violently opposed to any alcohol drink. But he liked to eat meat, so he was a little complicated. So mm. he, we, my, my joke about him was like, uh, meat, yes. Alcohol, no. Sex, maybe. You know, mm. that was his his uh, point of view. I, um, not as a Buddhist particularly, but I believe that what we're doing with industrial farming and for the environment, uh, cows are not good. I know this. Well, they're pretty good if they're cut in slices and grilled. No, no, no. But I mean, good for the environment yeah. and um, maybe the way they're treated in the factory farms could be better. Someone pointed out to me uh, yesterday that most cows would not have any life if it wasn't for industrial farming because they only exist. Exactly. You know, even for a short time. So can we think that industrial farming gives beings another step on the road to reincarnation as humans? I duck the In other words, if if you're going from slug to turtle to cow to human and there's not enough cows around, then it'll be harder to get from the turtle to the human. I don't know if you have to go through cows. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I don't have that, uh, that roadmap. Well, chickens or, or whatever, the, it's, it's farmed industrially. I, I duck the question. Uh, I'm writing my book called The Buddhism of the Future, you know, to building the future Buddha, Zen of the future. I haven't decided on the title yet, but there is a section yet that I'm saying, I hope this artificial meat substitute becomes a thing in the next couple of years, because this will finally solve the question for us. And then we can have our 
our hamburgers without uh, any guilt at all. Yes, lab-grown meat. I don't know about you. I've eaten a couple of those vegetarian hamburgers. and They're good. Eh, they're good for a while, but then you start realizing that they're full of like palm oil and other stuff to make them taste like meat. I ate macrobiotic for a few years back in my 20s. I was a vegetarian for a long time. When my son was born in 1990, I thought, well, a child needs meat, so I'm going to go back to eating meat. And I've gone back and forth over the years, not for ethical reasons, but just because it just seems like a good thing. But I would rather eat vegetables that look and taste like vegetables than some sort of vegetables concocted to make it seem like meat. But they're going to get, they're going to get better. You know, well, and, I agree uh, that the lab-grown meat is interesting because what you're doing is you're growing just the muscle tissue, but not the sentience. But does the muscle tissue have sentience? Uh, no more than a rock, which you're welcome to have for lunch, I guess, and, or, or a <laughs> carrot. I think it's about. But uh, you know, the name they get away, the lab-grown meat uh, doesn't sound uh, so so delicious. To be honest, I think the Dalai Lama needs to eat meat. People don't know this, but yeah. It's said for medical reasons. The Dalai Lama has Dalai Lama anemia, I believe. Ah. And and he was told by a doctor he needs to eat certain meals every week with meat, and he does. Yeah. And the Tibetans do because they live so high up, it's hard to grow carrots. Sure. So they eat a lot of meat up there. Yeah. And there's a lot of debate in Tibet about whether they should be vegetarian. And in our sangha, Tree Leaf, I kind of leave it to everyone to, to be moderate, uh, chant for the animals, realize the, the, what they're giving, but at the same time, maybe we should be vegetarian. But I'm going to say one thing, darn it. Ask me what the thing is, Kara. What's the thing you want to say? I'm glad you asked. It is that I don't think that animals in the jungle had such a good time. Mm. I know they're not. it's not the best place to raise them on farms, but I think I would rather be a cow on a farm, even if someone's going to eat me someday, than a deer in the wild. Yeah. Constantly afraid, constantly being hunted, and not necessarily by humans, being hunted by other animals. It's dog-eat-dog dog out there in the forest. Do dogs no, eat dogs? No, I don't no, think dogs, so. I don't think dogs eat dogs, but no. uh, it's uh, survival of the fittest. That's, uh, I, I, I just came up with that term. Point it. Okay. Uh, heard it here first. <laughs> survival of the fittest. It's uh, really prey and be preyed on, predators. It's not a pretty picture. We had someone, uh, it seems like a very nice lady who wrote a book and said, learn from the animals, just observe them. And I said, yeah, but if you actually watch the animals, it's really rough out there, yeah. you know? So I think that, number one, we want to get away from our animal nature. Number two, we don't want to be like the animals. Number three, if we choose to be not eating animals is because we're the animal who can choose to change its diet. I don't think tigers dis debate vegetarianism. No. But the other thing is, I don't think animals think about death the same way we do. Yeah. For a moment, they do. Yeah. They don't really. They don't know what the futures could hold because they don't have a history and a lore telling them that they're going to die. They see other dead animals, but they might not really understand it. There's no sea lion, Sartre, who, for example sits there going, what is the point and where do we go? It's all meaningless. <laughs> nobody, no, no, nobody in the, the sea lions, you know what they say when they, they just go, arf, 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 arf. That's all they do. <laughs> they don't worry about what's the meaning of it all. 
where do we go when we die? I have a friend who's very ill right now, and he has uh, a medical procedure coming up. And it, because he's a human being, he's done what human beings do, which he's been thinking about it every day since he got the diagnosis. I was there too when I was sick. And I don't think uh, my cat worries about uh, what the nearest threat is for more than five seconds after that threat is removed. Yeah. I think in a way that, uh, well, I'd rather be an animal who someone ate sometimes than uh, one just out in the, in the forest or the jungle. My take on this, since I first saw about 30 years ago some documentary or some TV report about how battery chickens are raised, and that just turned me off of that sort of chicken. So I will only buy free-range chickens as much as possible. I buy free-range meat. I'm fortunate to live in an area where we get free-range eggs all the time. Um, there are sheep in the fields around here. And while I'm still going to eat meat, I don't want the animals to have suffering when they're being raised. And I think that's something at least that we can do is not contribute to that industrialized farming. I, I agree so hard, uh, so fully. Plus pigs and, and, and chicken farms, what they're doing to the environment is really terrible. So let's close with the, the, the famous teaching of uh, that sutra, if I may. May I quote it? Yes, please. Be kind to your web-footed friends, for a duck <laughs> may be somebody's. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.